And we are continuing our series entitled Citizenship. The question that we are inviting all of us to ponder in this series is what forms your identity? Um, what do you see yourself as a part of? Uh, we have all kinds of labels to identify ourselves. We, uh, here we are worried though that the divisions that are happening in our country and in our culture and the hostility and all that stuff could potentially carry over into this community of faith. And as followers of Jesus, it's easy to forget that Jesus gives us our fundamental identity and our primary citizenship is in heaven based in Christ. Um, and that citizenship supersedes all of the others. This is week three. Um, of our series. In the first week, uh, we were reminded that Jesus holds all supremacy, that anything else that we honor or love or hold dear, it comes second. And allegiance to Jesus is on the top of our list and it supersedes the rest. Uh, last week, we began to look at other things that form our identity. Um, and Pastor John made a distinction between identity as description and identity as worth. And the things and how the things we use to identify ourselves, um, things like race and gender and sexual orientation, they may identify us, but they are not our source of worth. And there are two traps he talked about. Um, when those things determine our worth. The first trap is always needing to be affirmed in our identity. And the second trap is to teach or to treat others poorly or differently because of their identity. Um, our identities should not lead us into either trap. For example, when it comes to um, sexual orientation, while here at TFRC, we maintain a traditional biblical view of human sexuality. That really isn't up for discussion. Um, while that is the case, we are also not to treat LGBTQ people differently. Uh, that really isn't up for discussion either. Um, we are, and so while we are not affirming, we are called to be welcoming and loving. Okay, so that was the first two weeks. Uh, this morning, we are going to take a look at our politics, and we're going to ask ourselves which is more important, our faith or our politics. And if you think they're equally important, it's not even close, sorry. Um, faith in Jesus transcends our politics. The scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 3. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Um, the passage is an account of Jesus choosing his 12 apostles. While Jesus had many disciples, he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. And they would ultimately form the core of the early church leadership. Now, your first thought might be, what does picking the 12 apostles have to do with politics? It's a great question. You'll see. Okay, um, our scripture reader this morning is uh, Carol Suter. Carol, if you can make your way in up to the podium. As she does, I'm going to ask if you're able to please stand and face the center of the room. Um, we stand because we believe this is the word of God, and we read from the center of the room to remind us that Scripture is to be central in our lives, both as individuals and as a community of faith. And so, Carol, whenever you are ready, please read from Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he anoint, appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, 
son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Carol, thank you very much. You may be seated. Um, how many of you have either seen or remember the movie Miracle, the movie about the 1980 men's Olympic hockey team? Just raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay. Um, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. It's just a great, it's a great movie. The movie follows hockey coach Herb Brooks, um, and he leads the 1980 men's Olympic hockey to, team to the gold medal. Uh, defeating the USSR hockey team along the way. And what's important to know is that the USSR, the Russian hockey team, had not lost in like, it was almost 20 years. The victory over uh, Russia in the 1980 Olympics by our men's hockey team is easily one of the greatest upsets in all of sports history. Um, the challenge for Coach Brooks was that the team, the team that he was coaching, was composed of players from various colleges all around the country. And many of them that were on the same team were hated rivals when they played in college. And so while they were on Team USA, they didn't see themselves that way. They still saw themselves as representing their own colleges. And so the miracle of the movie wasn't just beating the Russians, which was a miracle. It was Coach Brooks getting these rivals to unite as one team. Now, there's a lot of things that we don't always appreciate about Jesus. And one of them is that Jesus took a group of young disciples who, while they were all faithful religious Jews, they were not all the same. They did not always get along. Um, it was not uncommon to read stories about how they argued. Um, who was the greatest? Who was the greatest? Who was the greatest? And Jesus united them to see themselves as something much bigger. Because of their belief in Jesus, they were never going to see themselves the same. And in order to appreciate um, how this passage we just read addresses the role of politics in lives of the followers of Jesus, uh, we just need to understand what was going on politically in Jesus' time. And the most important political reality in the time of Jesus was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, they occupied the land of Israel. And it was an abomination for the Jews that the Romans occupied Israel because for the Jews, the land of Israel wasn't just their land. It was their inheritance that God gave them. And the Romans had no business controlling their land, controlling their inheritance. And they desperately wanted the Romans out. Now, on top of that, you have this another political reality. Um, you have this Herodian dynasty, the kings and rulers of, of Israel, starting with Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod that many of you are familiar with from the Christmas story. And you have Herod the Great and his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. They worked in conjunction with Rome to rule over Israel. And they also were not very popular with the average religious Jewish person. 
And then a third political reality was the Jewish aristocracy known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly ruling class. You'll read about them in the Gospels from time to time as well. They controlled the Jewish temple. Uh, the temple was central to uh, the Jewish faith. And the Sadducees, in Jesus' day, they were corrupt. They used their position to gain wealth, to gain power. And while they weren't necessarily friendly with the Herods, they definitely cooperated with the Romans. And they would also embrace many parts of Roman culture. They would go to the Roman theater. They would go to the Roman arena and watch all the different games that took place there. And so while they controlled the temple, they were not looked upon very favorably by the average religious Jewish person. So you have the Roman Empire. You have the Herodian dynasty. You have the Sadducees. And in Jesus' day, you were either for or against this political setup. There really wasn't any room to be neutral. So you could either be pro-Herod and pro-Rome or anti-Herod, anti-Rome. Um, and one group in particular that was more pro-Herod and pro-Rome was the tax collectors. And when you read the Gospels, you are going to encounter the tax collectors. And um, in that day, different tax collectors served different purposes, but the tax collectors we read about in the Gospels, they collected taxes for Herod. They didn't necessarily work directly for Rome, but they might as well have because they were despised by the people. They were despised by the people for two reasons. One is that they were just flat-out cheats. They were dishonest. Um, tax collecting, how it worked, if you wanted to collect taxes for Herod, um, they would be farmed out. Tax collecting was farmed out by Herod. You would buy the right to become a tax collector in a certain area. And so tax collectors were kind of wealthy to begin with in order to even just buy an area to be a tax collector in. Um, and then after they bought the right to become a tax collector, they worked on commission. So the more taxes they brought in, the more money they made personally. And so they could increase the tax rate or assess the worth of your property and possessions as more than they actually were um, just so that they could get more money. And that happened often, frequently. The system bred dishonesty. The tax collectors were despised for their dishonesty, and they were despised because they were part of the system. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as helping Herod. They were seen as helping Rome. They had sold out to the enemy. And when you read about them in the Gospels, they are in the same moral class as the sinners and prostitutes in the eyes of a typical religious Jew. They had forfeited their right as part of God's chosen people. Now, if you go back to Mark chapter 3 and you look at verse 18 and go to the fourth name in verse 18, first name is Andrew and then Philip and then Bartholomew and then Matthew. And many of you know that Matthew was a tax collector. You can read about it in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus had the audacity to call a tax collector to follow him. And not just as a disciple, but he makes him an apostle. The apostles were the leaders. They were part of Jesus' inner circle. Can you imagine 
How dumbfounding it must have been for people to see Jesus having a former tax collector on his leadership team. What kind of political statement does that make? Is Jesus pro-Herod? Is he pro-Rome? And Jesus had all kinds of interactions with tax collectors. He is often criticized for eating with tax collectors. Jesus was very comfortable going into their homes and going into their homes and eating with tax collectors dinged Jesus's reputation over and over and over again. It was something that his disciples were always having to explain. Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? In addition to that, one of the better known stories in the Bible, if you grew up in the church, you know this story, his famous encounter with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus the tax collector. You can read about it in Luke 19. Again, if you grew up in the church, you know the story, you probably know the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. See, we're not gonna sing the whole song, but you know the story. All right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector who came to faith in Jesus. And even though Jesus would hang out with tax collectors, he didn't agree with their politics. The tax collector was about, getting, was about using the political system for personal financial gain. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And what that meant for a tax collector was playing the political game for your benefit is not going to give you the life you are looking for. You will not find life by winning the political game. So you could be pro-Herod, pro-Rome, or you could be anti-Herod, anti-Rome. Most of the religious Jews in Jesus' day were anti-Rome. One particular anti-Rome group was called the Zealots. The Zealots believed in violence against God's enemies. They believed that God's deliverance would be a military victory, that God would use them to drive the Romans from their land, and it would be a violent victory. And for us, in our understanding of faith and God and Jesus, this is a real foreign concept. Um, wait a minute, God's deliverance comes through violence? Who came up with that idea? That's, that's really bizarre. Well, now, to be clear, I do not, I'm not an advocate for violence. Do not approve of violence. But you know, just kind of think about up to that particular point in their history. The stories that they were told about God's deliverance. How did God bring deliverance for the Jews? What stories would the zealots have been told or any religious Jew would have been told? Well, they would have been told about the Exodus and how God delivered them out of slavery. Well, that was a violent deliverance. Or the taking of the promised land. That was violent. Or the book of Judges. That was violent. David and Goliath. That was violent. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That was violent. Time and time again, God's deliverance was violent. To be clear, 
I'm not advocating for violence, but you can see why the zealots would think that way. Violence over God's enemies. And not just violence against the Romans, but violence against both Romans and Jewish traitors. There was a group of zealot-like rebels called the Sicarii. They were named after this short, curved dagger that they would use to kill. They would walk up behind someone in a crowded space and just kind of stick that dagger underneath their rib cage and kill them, and then they would just remove the dagger and just kind of blend back in with the crowd before anyone even realized what happened. And the Sicarii would target traitors like the Sadducees, and they would target sometimes to kill them, but sometimes they would just try to dismember those associated with the priesthood and by doing so, making them unclean. See, if you were to take and dismember a member of the priestly class, take out their eye, ear, slice off a part of their nose, whatever, and they were a part of the priesthood, well, that would make them unclean. For the rest of their lives, they would not be able to perform their priestly duties. So now go back to Mark chapter 3, go back to verse 18, and look at the last name on the list. In the 12, you have Simon the Zealot. Jesus had a zealot in his leadership corps. What kind of political statement is Jesus making? Is Jesus a rebel like the Sicarii? In fact, the charge against Jesus when he was crucified is he was king of the Jews. And traditionally, we believe that Jesus was crucified with two thieves. A more accurate understanding of who was most likely crucified with Jesus were two rebels. In fact, some translations like the NIV, NASB, New Living Translation, they say that it was two rebels crucified with Jesus, which would make more sense that Jesus was crucified with rebels because the Romans thought he was a rebel. I have a map of the region of Galilee. Galilee is in northern Israel. It's the place where Jesus did um, most of his earthly ministry. And if you look on this map, if you look on the lower left part of the map, you see Nazareth. Now, just to the, what would that be? East, you have the Sea of Galilee. If you've ever been to, ever been to Flathead Lake, Montana, region, Flathead Lake, anyone? Okay, Sea of Galilee, a lot like Flathead Lake, okay? In, in size and shape and dimensions and all that kind of stuff. All right, so now if you go to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, you have Capernaum, which was a place of um, Jesus' home base of ministry. Jesus' hometown was Nazareth. Capernaum was more like his home base for ministry. And then, just also on the North Shore, you have Bethsaida, which is a place of um, four disciples grew up in the small little village of Bethsaida. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Um, and then, if you just go east of there, not even, less than 10 miles, it's like six miles, you go east from Bethsaida, and you have Gamla. Gamla was the home base for the zealots. Um, in fact, when the great Jewish revolt happened in uh, AD 60s, it was about 35 years after Jesus' resurrection, where in the great Jewish revolt, the Romans uh, defeated the zealots, 
Um, it was when they destroyed the, Jew the Jerusalem temple in AD 70, and it marked that time that Israel was no longer a nation, and Israel would not become a nation again until 1948. When the Roman army came to put down that rebellion, the first place they went to wasn't Jerusalem. The first place they went to was Gamla. And when Gamla fell, it was the beginning of the end for the zealots. Gamla was the home base for them. And it was in the region where Jesus did most of his earthly ministry. And you can see zealot influence with those Jesus encountered. Like the time in the Gospel of John, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And it says after he fed the 5,000, that they wanted to make him king by force. You can read about this in John chapter 6. So after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he has this huge following. <laughs> Not a surprise. And the people wanted to make him king by force, meaning they wanted to follow him in a violent conflict with Rome. That is zealot thinking. And Jesus resisted that line of thinking and withdrew from the crowd. And then, another time, Jesus is arrested in the garden. And many of you know that when he's arrested in the garden, Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And I always thought, eh, Peter's a little bit out of control here. He's in a frenzy. Maybe he just didn't have much experience fighting with swords. Why cut off the ear of the high priest's servant? Because... He couldn't serve in the temple anymore. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't in a frenzy. It was a classic zealot move that Peter was very familiar with. Even though Jesus' movement encountered the zealot movement, and like Jesus, <laughs> the zealots were zealous for the faith, Jesus didn't agree with their politics. The zealots were about acquiring political power violently. And Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What that meant for a zealot was, you know something? Your zeal is great, but it's misplaced. Confusing political victory with spiritual victory is a mistake. You will not find the life you're looking for by winning the political game. Three things I think all of us need to remember as we ponder this reality. If Jesus can unite the zealot and the tax collector, surely he can unite the Democrat and Republican. Could you imagine what it was like for Matthew the tax collector to try to sleep at night? Because Simon the Zealot is just right over there. I don't know what Simon's going to do. What's Simon going to do? Jesus called them both and gave each of them a new purpose to change the world in the name of Jesus. And neither of them would be the same and neither would the world be. And in order to follow Jesus, the tax collector was going to have to give up some of his tax-collecting thinking and values and practices. And in order to follow Jesus, the zealot was going to have to give up some of his zealot thinking and values and practices. And Jesus told them, 
love one another. You can be followers of Jesus and be a Republican. You can be followers of Jesus and be a Democrat. And regardless, it's always necessary to evaluate how our politics influences our thinking and values and practices. And we may have to change some of our thinking and value and practices in order to follow Jesus. But Jesus is giving us a much bigger purpose than anything politics has to offer. Our identity is in Jesus first, and our politics is superseded by our faith. Second thing is, faith can inform our politics, but our politics should never inform our faith. In other words, some of you may think, how could someone be a Christian and vote for Trump? Or, how could someone be a Christian and vote for Biden? Who you vote for doesn't determine your faith. This may be a shocker, but faith in Jesus determines your faith. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, would you like to know who I voted for in the last presidential election? I'm not going to tell you. Ha, 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 ha. Because if I tell you, um, all of you are going to label me. Some of you will trust me more. Some of you will trust me less. And you know what won't matter? What won't matter is how much I love Jesus. And it won't matter how faithful I am to the word of God. And it won't matter how much I love you. The political label will take all the precedence. And that's not just true for me, it's true for all of us. Our political labels are taking precedence over our faith. That's not okay. All of us need to repent from that. Jesus makes us brothers and sisters regardless of who we voted for. Now this third thing to remember may seem like a no-brainer, so I'm just going to call this a friendly reminder. Political movements come and go. The kingdom of God lasts forever. Some of us have a political position on things like abortion, standing up for the unborn. Some of us have a political position on immigration, standing up for immigrants um, and refugees. Others of us may be on the actual opposite side politically of those issues for reasons like women's rights or border security. As a community of faith, we need to discern how God wants us to respond to those kinds of things, to things like abortion, immigration, and a whole list of issues. But as we discern how to respond to these things as a community of faith, we remain a community of faith. We are called to love one another. And just as both the tax collector and zealot thought that if they could win the political game, they would find life, Sometimes we think that too. They were wrong. Sometimes we confuse political victory for spiritual victory. And if we lose the political value, we think we've lost a spiritual battle. Well, just because we win a political ba battle doesn't necessarily mean we've won a spiritual battle. We are in the heart-changing business as followers of Jesus. And you do not win hearts for Jesus 
with political action committees. It's not the way it works. We win hearts for Jesus with grace, mercy, love, understanding, and we are called to practice some of those things on each other as well. In the divisive state that we find our country in right now, when it comes to politics, when we disagree, and we're going to disagree, that's okay. Let's give each other grace and mercy. And remember who is our Lord and Savior. Please pray with me. And Lord, we would ask that um, for any of us that has put anything above our um, loyalty and love for Jesus, if we put anything above that, that you would reveal that to us. And Lord, that we would get our faith priorities back in order. Lord, I thank you how you've called each and every one of us and how we are different and in many ways we, re we remain different. But Lord, you call us all the same to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we, I thank you for each and every one who is a part of this faith community that we call TFRC. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Receive God's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.